Well, I'd love you to open your Bibles to um, two places, Genesis 22, it's the first book of the Bible, so if you just open right at the start and flick through to chapter 22, it's on page 26, and then you can also put a finger in or a bookmark in at Hebrews 11, which is page 17, we're going to go to page 1755, Hebrews 11, uh, 17. Genesis 22 and Hebrews 11. We're going to read the longer story in the book of Genesis before we um, read from Hebrews. But I want to just take a moment to pray actually before we begin. Um, obviously, it's a huge deal for us when people get married, but you know, Eugene and Peugeot have been so at the center of what we've been doing here as a church and church plant. So I want us to pray for them together. Also, um, you know, I think one of the reasons Dan was tearful, which is not unusual for Dan, I know, but you know, one of the reasons he's tearful is because his fiance is being, suffering with chronic pain, and um, they're getting married in a couple of months, and so um, I'd love us just to pray and agree together that God will bless her and help them and prepare her for marriage, and so let's just pray together, shall we? Father, we, we want to give thanks, first of all, for the precious gift that Eugene and Paget have been to us as a, as a church, and Lord, as they prepare, not just for our wedding day, but Lord, for our marriage. Lord, we ask that your favor will be upon them in a profound way. We recognize that it's been your will to bring them together, that you've prepared them for great things. We ask that that day will be such a wonderful day as we celebrate the beginning of something that mirrors the wedding of Christ and his church. And pray, Lord Jesus, that you will equip them for mission, a common mission together as a couple devoted to you in your service. Bless them, Lord, we pray. And Lord God, we thank you also for Dan, what a blessing he's been to us. And Lord, pray that as he prepares for marriage to Heather, Lord God, I pray that you will strengthen their relationships. But Lord, we want to ask that you will heal her. Lord, these head pains, Lord, that she's suffered for years, Lord, we ask that you will, Lord, either give the doctors immense wisdom and insight to know what to do, or Lord, that you will miraculously lift this off her. Father, we thank you that she's going to come and be a part of this church soon. We want to be a blessing to her and she to us. But Lord God, we're praying for deliverance now in Jesus' name. And speak to us today as we study your word. Amen. Genesis 22. After these things, God tested Abraham. Now remember, Abraham is this, the founder of all the Abrahamic religions, and of course, one of the most significant men who's ever lived. And here's one of the most difficult things he ever went through. God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the, day, on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on, his, on Isaac, his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, 
God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. And when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. Over in Hebrews 11 then, from verse 17, by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. And by faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. And by faith, Jacob, when he dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. And by faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. I want us to ask this question just to begin. Why would... Why would God allow us to face uh, difficult circumstances? Why would he expose us to tests? And uh, just before I get into some, some of what I want to share, I just want to tell you why this week and last week it felt so pertinent to us personally. Um, last week when we were on, away on holiday, uh, we, we received news halfway through the week that my mother-in-law um, has a massive uh, cancerous tumor in her bowel. Um, she's about six. She's just turning sixty in, in a couple of weeks' time, and uh, we we're obviously like totally shocked by this. They said it was five centimeters in size, or six centimeters in size, and that she'd had it probably for five years. It caused bleeding and so on. And so, um, obviously, this hit us massively. See, being a doctor, immediately understood the, the scale of the risk of uh, her situation, and. Um, and then last week came around and we were preaching, we were looking at that section where it says that um, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised. So if it felt particularly um, heavy last week, you understand what was going on in my heart and in my head as I was, as I was preaching through that passage. And um, then Monday came around and we, were, we went out to see them and it's been so extraordinary to witness. Um, I can see like, how my father-in-law has just gone through a process of really 
trying to come to terms with what it would be like not to have his wife around. You know, you imagine retirement together and so on. And she's, whenever you ask her how she's doing, she says, I'm okay. She says, I feel sorry for all of you, but I'm okay. She has immense peace in her heart. Whatever would happen, she'd go to be with God and that, that she will be okay. And uh, so we were waiting, basically, tests that will come this Friday. And, and uh, yesterday, sorry, on Friday, we heard that the best news that we could hope for, which was that it's an isolated cancer and not at all, um, it doesn't seem to have spread around her body, that the surgeons think they can just cut it out and deal with it. And hopefully it will not come back, that there will be the simplest solution that we could pray and hope for for this situation, which obviously has felt like an enormous weight off our shoulders. I mean, it's still a huge thing. She still has cancer. She's still you know, in very, in, very much at risk, but it feels like it's no longer like the death sentence that it was. And then to come to this next passage, you know, which is all about how God tests us and exposes us to things, it's felt, you know, as you so often happens when you're preaching through just sections of the Bible with no idea how God's going to weave it together, that God speaks to you in times and seasons in ways that are so relevant to your circumstances. And I trust again, of course, that he's going to be doing that for you today as we think about this. And I wrestle with this question, why would God test us? Why would he allow us to face things that seem too enormous for us to face? And because it seems on the face of it, a totally self-defeating thing for God to do. God wants people to love and worship him and be part of his kingdom. This is no great advertisement for the kingdom, is it? You know, you remember a few years back when um, Apple were just beginning their kind of ascent into getting into lots of people's homes and replacing the PC. Um, one of the, the ways they sort of sold their product to us, well, they, the slogan was, it just works. And those of us who'd had PCs and wrestled with them for days trying to get them to work and to do something as basic as talk to the printer, you know, we, we suddenly thought, hey, this is, this is exactly what I need. I don't care if it costs more. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pay for this thing, and it, it just works. Now, can you imagine if Apple's slogan had been, it just doesn't work? <laughs> you know, or if this, 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 this product will give you a headache. No one's going to buy into that. And so when you think about the Christian faith, why is it that God is so open and honest to us about you know, this terrible marketing uh, scheme that says when you become a Christian, God's going to expose you to trials, tests, and temptations that you might uh, feel like you are totally being destroyed by? And I know that some Christians have reacted to that question and just said, well, he doesn't. That's the answer. You know, the Christian life is one of ever-increasing joy, peace, victory, and success. And anything that isn't Part of that package is not from God, that God doesn't expose us to things that are too difficult. And the trouble with that kind of perspective, which is not at all uncommon, is that first of all, it's not biblical. I'm just going to say that up front. You can take my word for it, or you can read this passage. What does it say? It says, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, you might push back and say, well, it's not saying that God tested him, but didn't we read that in Genesis 22? After these things, God tested Abraham. So I'm going to say to you, it's not at all biblical to understand that God protects us or withholds um, all trials and difficulties from us. It's not at all. And also, if that's your view of how God works, then the reality is as soon as something hits you that's too difficult for you, you crash and burn because you were never expecting it in the first place. So I don't think it's helpful at all for us to have this sort of narrow view of how God works. I think you've got to recall why this chapter was written in the first place. It was written for people who were experiencing 
Trials that were about to push them over the edge. People who felt that their, their walk with God wasn't worth it. Because the difficulty of remaining in the faith, remaining in church, remaining with Christ, was far too much for them. And it's far better we just turn our backs on the whole thing. That was the basic sort of equation that was going on in their hearts. And so he spends the whole of the book just telling them why God's way is worth it, why Jesus is better than any other option out there. And he brings it to this kind of rousing conclusion in this chapter where he says, look at all these people who've gone before you. Look at their faith. Holds up some of them as these positive examples of great victory. And others like this, this moment for Abraham, moments of intense weakness. And in fact, situations you would never choose for yourself and says, you can look at these guys and see how they, how, what God allowed them to go through in order to, to teach them things or in order to achieve his greater purposes. So you can reflect back on your own situation. Understand, friends, we need to have faith and carry on. I want to ask this question then. Why does God allow us to face tests? We have to assume that God's sovereign, right? Nothing is outside of his control. So whenever he exposes us to stuff which we find too difficult, too hard, or too heavy, he has a reason for it. And it's not just the kind of, the kind of you know, platitude that every, people say, everything happens for a reason. No, we're talking about a personal living God who has a purposeful reason behind the things that go on in your life. Whether it's sickness, whether it's allowing you to experience temptations, whether it's allowing you to experience loss, hardship, buffeting, setbacks, closed doors, whatever it is, God has a purpose. And I want to ask the question, well, why? I mean, it's helpful in itself just to know that he has a purpose, but ask why. And I want to give you six answers to that. The first is to reveal whether your faith is really there at all. It's very easy, isn't it, to, to talk about your faith in God, to express with your mouth your trust and faith in God. The only way you can know whether it's real is when it's put to the test. We saw this with, um, with Peter in Matthew 26 when Jesus tells his disciples. He says to them, he says, you'll all fall away because of me this night. It's the night just before he's put to death. He says, you'll all fall away. For it's written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. And what does Peter do? He stands up and says, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. How cheap words are. Jesus responds to him and just says, truly I tell you this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter just contradicts him again and says, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. One of the reasons God exposes us to tests is to reveal whether faith was ever there in the first place. And of course, there's a negative side to this that I think often we can think it's there when it's not. You know, there are people even in churches who in in one sense are posing as, as believers. And you would never know until they're exposed to something that they cannot bear. Jesus talks about it in the parable of the sower. 
how the seed grows quickly and then the thorns grow around it and sap it of resources and light and then it dies and withers and, and is, is gone. The answer was, well, did they have faith in the first place? Well, no, not really. Not in the face of genuine trials. And I think God has a purpose because if you think you have faith and you don't, it's harmful on two levels. It's harmful partly because you're deceiving yourself. And there's nothing more dangerous than self-deception, is there? To believe something is true of yourself which isn't true. It's better that you're, you come to understand yourself better. But it's also dangerous for the church when I think this is one of the reasons so many churches in our country are so lukewarm in their faith, so lacking in anything that resembles passion or zeal for God. It's because actually if you examined the hearts of people in those churches, you would discover that they had no faith to begin with. That their religious devotion was just that, just a, a duty, a tradition, not rooted in real personal trust in the living God, a relationship with him. So obviously God exposes people to things in order to kind of prune his church or to prune our own lives. But there's also a positive side to this. If God wants to expose what's really there, then there's a benefit to that, isn't there? When you get to discover just how solid your faith really is, because you face stuff you wouldn't have otherwise had to face. You know, I, one of my favorite um, TV dramas is the I think it was nine episodes long, Band of Brothers, came out, out years ago. Follows Easy Company as they march through France and into Germany just after D-Day. And they, they experience Im- immense difficulty and suffering at every stage of the journey. Almost breaks them. And one of the things that you always reflect on when you look at people's trials and sufferings is, would I, would I have what it, take, what it takes were I in their situation? whether it's a situation like theirs or whether it's something like suffering in your family or whatever, would I have what it takes? And no amount of bravado and bluster can answer that question because the only way you can ever know is if you were placed there in that situation, in those circumstances. One of the reasons then that God exposes us to things that seem too heavy for us, too hard to bear, is that we might experience the joy of discovering what our faith is really made of. Here's another. I think God allows us to go through trials and tests us in this way in order to actually strengthen our faith. I know that sometimes what little there is can be destroyed. But I also know this, that faith is a little bit like a muscle. You ever had that experience where you've, you've exercised or done some work that you hadn't done, ever done before, like you know, swung a hammer for a, a day of labor and you've never used one before, or you've gone to the gym and actually lifted some weights for the first time in five years, and you feel great at the end of it, tired but great, then the day after, or maybe two days later, you, you, don't even, you can't even lift your hand up. You try and get in the shower to wash your hair, and it's like you've got to kind of... You know, it's like your whole body just kills and aches. They call it delayed onset muscle soreness. And it's a killer. Some people, that's like the last time they're ever going to go and do any exercise. (laughs) But faith is a little bit like muscle. Apparently what's going on there is that your muscles are tearing a little bit as you're straining them beyond what they've ever done before. And as they tear, they heal, but they grow bigger and stronger. So I've been told. (laughs) Talk to Dan. (laughs) Faith is a bit like that. Faith is limp and weak when it's never exposed to anything that 
resists it. But when you're called upon to trust in situations that you've never faced before, you may feel like you just barely scraped through at the time, but God is preparing you for something greater in the future. He is strengthening your faith. He's exposing you, exercising you, causing you to depend on him in a new way. And greater tests lead to greater faith. Here's a third reason why God exposes us to tests. I think he does it in order to display his goodness. Now you'd think that makes no sense, wouldn't you? Why, how can God possibly display his goodness by allowing his children to suffer? You know, what is it about the Genesis 22 passage as God tells him to kill Abraham, to kill Isaac, that says to you, God is good? On the face of it, at the beginning of the story, absolutely nothing right. But I want you to think of it this way. I think there's nothing more compelling than a faith that actually works through trials. And here we are, we're holding out the word of life to the world and saying, friends, you need to believe in what we believe in. This is the only thing that offers real, lasting, solid hope. But if the world has never seen us suffer, if you've never experienced anything that's resisted or put your faith to the test, then there's no re- you're not really offering something that's proven and tested, are you? But when we are offering before the world our experiences of suffering, our trials, and saying our faith works in the worst that life can throw at you, then we're saying to people, this is a proven and tested faith. And friends, that gives God glory. He wants his people to display to the world that it's our way is the best way, not in an arrogant way, not in a kind of sort of in a, a way that's like bad kind of boasting. But in a way that just is a statement of fact, because I, you know, one thing you just observe is just how, how much the world is throwing at us all kinds of solutions and options for a better life. The only test is, do they work in the worst of life circumstances, not just when you're a well-heeled, wealthy Londoner with a the, with the dream life? I just mentioned to you at the start, our friends planting in the Rhonda Valley the most hopeless region I've ever been to. You could throw all kinds of solutions at them that are on offer these days, whether it's from medical solutions through to lifestyle changes through to whatever. But ultimately, this is their confidence that motivates Ben and Lois as they plant their church. It's that God's way works in the hardest of life circumstances. And they're seeking to prove it even in their own life, even in their own sacrifices and the toll it takes on them. How difficult it is to be in a situation where you don't really, on any natural level, identify with any of the people around you. You're educated and you've, you've, you've seen the world a bit and the people around you haven't. Well, Ben and Lois are seeking to demonstrate through their own lives that this is a faith that can carry them through the all kinds of circumstances. I think that's one of the things God does. He displays his goodness through his people when they, when they persevere. Here's a fourth thing. I think God does it in order to establish role models and heroes. That God tests people in order to establish for us role models and heroes. You ever notice that some people seem to go through stuff which is far worse than anything you've ever faced to a way, just to a disproportionate degree, 
You look at their lives and think, why is it that they've had it so difficult? I think one of the reasons why God does that to certain people is just because we can look to them then and understand that in our relatively light afflictions or difficulties or trials, there's people who've gone ahead of us and been through worse and come through believing in God. This is exactly why I think a story like this one about Abraham is in the Bible. You think there's no sacrifice you could ever make that would compare with what Abraham had to do. Nothing. I don't think any of us will go through anything like that moment. So it means that whatever sacrifices or tests God's putting in front of us are relatively easy in comparison with what Abraham, the choice Abraham had to make. He becomes a hero for us. Same with someone like Paul. You remember how on a couple of occasions in the New Testament he recounts to us his sufferings for the gospel. Shipwrecked, beaten, flogged, stoned, cast out of cities, hungry, penniless, as he travels and travels and travels to share what he knows about Jesus. And I think it's partly he tells us all that because, you know, as missionaries to our city, or some of you may be missionaries to other parts of the world, you might be tempted on occasion to feel sorry for yourself, and we all do from time to time. But then we look at what Paul went through and we think, my situation's not that bad, is it? I've not been stoned yet. I mean, I'll never say never, but it's not happened yet. <laughs> one, of, you know, one of the people who just is so inspiring is alive today is a woman called Joni Erickson Tarda, who was a believer in Jesus, just joyful, happy-go-lucky teenager when at 19 years old she jumped uh, into is either into um, into the sea or into a river and she broke her neck and she became paralyzed from the neck down and to this day it took her a little while to work things out with God but she is a woman who radiates the joy of her love for God it didn't destroy her faith And she's been an example to many people through all kinds of suffering. God allows people to be exposed so that they can become an example to to us who face lesser things. She wrote a book, When God Weeps, about her sufferings. It's one of the most profound and helpful books you could ever read on the subject. Here's a fifth reason why God exposes us to tests. He does it in order to refine us. You see, when... When you're in a situation you know, prior to God experiencing many of God's blessings, you, you have to lean into him for all kinds of things, whether it's for work or money or a spouse or for children or whatever. I think it's, it's, it's often the easiest time in your life to trust God because you, you feel your desperate need for him. But the minute that God gives you the very things that you, your heart desires, you can be grateful, but so easily your, your trust can sh- subtly shift to the very things that God's given you. I can imagine that was a temptation for Abraham. Here he was, an old man, and God came good on his promise and gave him the son Isaac. Now how easy it would have been in that situation to wrap Isaac in cotton wool and idolize him as the son of the promise. 
How easy it would have been to treasure Isaac, in fact, above every other possession on earth and even above the God who gave him this son. Now, I don't think it's an accident that God puts his finger on the most precious thing in the world and says, I want you to give up that. One of the things God does to us through tests and trials, and just like my father-in-law had to contemplate this last week, what, how would I cope if my wife was taken away from me? Because so easily our hearts become wrapped up in worship of the things that God's given to us. A spouse becomes more important to us than God himself. The source of our joy. Children, your work, your sense of accomplishment in life. All kinds of things. And God says, well, if I take that away from you, what happens? Do you still love me? Do you still trust me? Do you still think I'm good? I think this is one of the reasons why God exposed Abraham to this particular type of trial and why he does it to us. Here's my last reason why I think God exposed us to tests. I think he does it in order to reward us. The very nature of a test is to discover your suitability for greater blessing and greater responsibility. It's true in all kinds of areas of life, isn't it? From you know, your driving test. What a blessing it is to be able to drive home after your test with no one else in the passenger seat. It's a blessing, it's a responsibility because you pass the test. That's how tests work. You think about a situation like David being marching out in front of Goliath. It was the moment when the, the, the whole nation could turn their eyes upon him and say, that man is someone we can follow. Because he was tested and he demonstrated a faith in God that, that qualified him, gave him credibility for the task of being king later on. And here, this is what God says to Abraham at the end of this story through the angel. He says, by myself I've sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. Multiply your offspring. And so on. God rewarded Abraham because of how he reacted to the test that God put him through. I want to ask this question then. I'm hoping at this point you're agreeing with me, okay? Whatever God puts me through, he has a purpose in it, even if I can't quite discern what that purpose is in the moment. Well, then the next question comes. Well, how do you face the test that God throws at you with grace? So if you're anything like me, when you're in the moment, when you feel that God's abandoned you and your situation is too hard to bear... Emotions can cloud your mind. And the things that you felt you knew were true in the light become dimmer when you're in the dark. They become less real to you. Abraham demonstrates for us a grace through that kind of a situation. I think that this story in Genesis 22 is the very pinnacle of his faith. I mean, he's already demonstrated faith in God in the fact that he moved from, from Haran to, to Canaan and lived in tents for the rest of his life. But here, this is the moment when Abraham's faith is most clearly on display for all the world. The most precious thing in the world is being offered up. 
keeps saying that expression in Genesis 22, your son, your only son. And he's also the one who bears all the promises, like it says in Hebrews 11 here. It says, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. All of Abraham's hopes, therefore, were concentrated in this one person, this boy Isaac. And God is saying, offer him up to me. And Abraham comes to a point where he lays him on the altar and he raises his hand with the knife in his hand, ready to take Isaac's life. How could he ever have reached that point where he said, this is, I'm going to do this, instead of saying, God, you are totally crazy. And I think the answer is that Abraham in that moment, I think he applied what you can kind of describe as a kind of faith logic. That he knew in his heart God's character and intentions must be good because God is good. And he also knew that God's promises have to be fulfilled no matter what he's told me to do. Which is why this writer in Hebrews tells us that Abraham reasoned to himself that he knew that God was able to raise Isaac from the dead. It doesn't actually say that in Genesis 22, does it? It doesn't give us a window into Abraham's mindset. But it does tell us this, that when they were leaving the two servants behind so he could go and kill Isaac in secret and not have anyone watch it happen, it says that Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey, I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. I think it's the closest clue we get to the fact that Abraham had some kind of faith confidence that my son is not going to return dead. Or he's not going to remain dead. How on earth can you react like that in the worst of life circumstances where you were willing to follow through on your commitment to God no matter what he allows you to be exposed to or whatever he throws at you? Well, friends, I want to encourage you that the simple answer is that we have to do as Abraham did and apply the same kind of faith logic to all the situations that we find ourselves in. I want to read to you four different verses in the New Testament. If one of them grabs you, note it down. Keep it in your heart, in your mind. Cling on to it. That's what Abraham did, in effect. Romans 8, 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, and for those who are called according to his purpose. The whole context of that passage is that God, there's still suffering going on in the world. And Paul is saying, everything that you go through in life, God is going to weave it all together into a beautiful tapestry. That he has a plan in it, that he has a purpose in it, and that he's going to bring it together for good for his children. Here's another verse. This one's written for people who are experiencing temptations that they find too hard to bear. Another kind of test that God allows us to be exposed to. I don't, the Bible says that God doesn't tempt us, but it does say that he allows us to experience temptation. It's one of the tests that we go through to test what our faith is made of. And 1 Corinthians 10 says this about Christians. It says, no temptation has overtaken you that's not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. He's saying in effect that there is never an excuse to give in to temptation. You can never say, I, didn't, I couldn't resist, it was impossible. God's saying he will never let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. If you sin, it's always because at some point you chose to. And then he also says and adds this, but with the temptation, he'll also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. 
Don't we all, haven't we all experienced this in moments of temptation that usually there's an eject button somewhere? You just have to choose to hit it. This is the kind of verse that you can hold on to even when everything and your emotions and your, and your circumstances are clouding around you and things that felt real to you in the light feel dim to you in the darkness. You hold on to truths like this. God is good. He's allowing me to experience this for a purpose. There's an eject button. I want to get out of this right now. Here's another one. James chapter 1. This is a consistent witness of the New Testament. That's why I'm reading to you from different books. In James 1, it says, Count it all joy, my brothers. This is verse 2. When you meet trials of various kinds. Trials. He says, For you know that the testing of your faith what we're talking about here, produces steadfastness. It strengthens you. It enlarges your faith muscles. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. He goes on a bit later on. It says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. So it's not only about producing steadfastness for its own sake, It's also so that then you can receive the crown of life. These are the kind of verses that you have to cling on to like they're your only anchor, your only hope when you think that God is allowing you to experience stuff that's too hard for you to bear. Let me read you one more. In 1 Peter, he says at the beginning, in 1 Peter chapter 1, he talks about us being born again to a living hope. What a joy it is to, to know God is your father and to be saved. But then he says, in this you rejoice, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. So whoever who sold you the story that when you become a Christian, all your troubles are going to evaporate, they were lying to you. Because here he is in 1 Peter saying, you've been born again, the greatest thing imaginable has happened to you, but for a little while you're being exposed and grieved by various trials. But he says there's a purpose. He says, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's saying God is on your side. He wants you to come through this like unrefined gold comes through the fire more pure than ever. He wants you to come through the other side of this, not weaker, not ready to run away and walk away from God, but rather understanding that God had a purpose to refine you and make you more like Jesus when he let you experience sufferings that in some small way reflect Jesus' own sufferings. I want to ask one last question before we bring this to a close. If all these things are true in theory... What on earth was God doing through this particular test that Abraham went through? And I think the answer has to be partly all of the above, everything I've been explaining to you. But I also think that there's something more profound going on in this story. That it has an amazing parallel with what God went through in offering up his own son on the cross for us. Let me tell you some of the reasons I believe that. 
Isaac is described as your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Jesus is said to be my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. It's not an accident that these two are described in this way. Isaac is to be sacrificed on Mount Moriah, the very location of the future temple in Jerusalem. You can visit the site of the Dome of the Rock today. And if you were able to go into the Al-Aqsa Mosque there at the top, which you're not unless you're a Muslim, you would see a stone there in the mosque, which, according to tradition, is the very stone on which Abraham laid his son. How interesting that the very place of the temple where the presence of God is, is a place where Isaac is offered up and where Christ would come to us as the future temple. Abraham is told to offer him up as a burnt offering. Again, a prefiguring of the future sacrificial system that Christ fulfilled in being the final sacrifice on the cross for us. There's a hint that Abraham believed that Isaac would be raised from the dead. You know, we read it there in Hebrews 11. Jesus was, in fact, raised from the dead for us. Abraham says, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. He says that to Isaac. It's the very thing God did for us in giving us Jesus as our sacrificial lamb in our place. God does provide a ram as a substitute offering. There's a one-to-one swap. Isaac is taken off of the pile of wood. The ram is laid on as it's slaughtered and burned. Christ also is our substitute who dies in our place. The whole episode, therefore, becomes one more way of ratifying the covenant through which God promises to bless and multiply Abraham's offerings. You know how the whole chapter came to that amazing conclusion? He says, because you've done this, I'm going to bless the whole world through you, Abraham. And that same pattern happens again when Jesus dies on the cross. In his obedience to the Father in going to the cross for you, God decides to give him the name that is above every name and to once more ratify his covenant with Abraham that through Abraham all the nations of the world would be blessed and that his family would grow to number the sand on the seashore and the stars in the sky. It's no accident these two stories are such a close mirror of one another with one distinction. The son is not offered up in Genesis 22 because the ram takes his place. Christ is that ram. Christ is that sacrifice. And I think the reason why God, you know, you see this so often going on in the Bible, don't you? All these threads that lead back to the cross, the stories that mirror what Jesus was going to do for us. But I want to tell you a couple of reasons as I close why I think God does this here. I think one is to show us that no matter your suffering, God always wants to bear the cost in the ultimate sense. He bore it when he provided the ram instead of Isaac. He bore it when he provided Jesus instead of you. And I think another reason why God, this, we see this amazing parallel is to show us in an indisputable way that God is always working for our good. It would have been impossible for Abraham in that moment to understand that what he was doing was in some way modeling what God would do in putting his son on the cross. Abraham could not have seen it. 
But there is never a situation where it's more obvious that God was working all things together for good, for those who love him, for those who are called according to his purpose. You take a step back and you gasp at the wisdom of God in the scriptures, don't you? Abraham there, with his very limited perspective, having to actually do the work, trudge up the hill, bring Isaac, lay Isaac down, raise the knife, not having a clue what God was up to. And you take a step back and you think, wow, all of that suffering, all of that difficulty, all of that testing, God had a plan and a purpose, even if I didn't understand it in the moment. He was going to bring it to a point where it preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I think the same can be true for us. Like Paul said, that in some small way, our sufferings can fill up what's lacking in Christ's suffering. That the tests and trials that he puts us through are there in order for our lives to preach the gospel with more sharpness and effectiveness and power. So friends, as we take communion today, I want us to take it with a mindfulness of this fact that God has not spared his own son. And it's the final proof that we need of God's goodness and of his love for us that he is for us in all of our situations and circumstances.